Amen. Well, hey, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning before we open up God's word. I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 1 and then just kind of, kind of pray this scripture for us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, He has delivered us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, this morning we are so grateful for the truth found here in this scripture that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son. Thank you, Christ, that in you we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for the opportunity we have week after week to gather together to, to pray that truth, to sing that truth, to preach that truth, to be reminded of that truth. Thank you for that truth that is being sown into the minds of our, our children here in CBC Kids. I'm just grateful, God, for the privilege that we have as the local church to engage as your ambassadors, to help others be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. I pray, Lord, this morning that as we turn to a topic that many of us may not be familiar with, as we, as we look at the biblical reality of what spiritual warfare is and, and what it isn't, I pray, God, that you would supernaturally give us your grace to have our minds enlarged, to have our understanding enlarged, so that we can cannot be ignorant, as Paul prays, of the schemes of the devil. We want to know what's going on so that we can be the people you've called us to be. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I gave you a little bit of a tease there. You see where we're headed, so buckle up. Hey, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. So over uh, the last 10 weeks, we've been kind of walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, looking at this series called Rebuild. And today in Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to see that it has not all roses for Nehemiah and the people of God, that this work of rebuilding is going to be met with some serious resistance and opposition. But once you get to Nehemiah chapter 4, do me a favor, put a bookmark there, put a pen there, and then we're going to turn to Nehemiah, I mean Ephesians chapter 6, excuse me. So Nehemiah 4 and then Ephesians chapter 6. So although Nehemiah will be our primary text, we're going to actually begin in Ephesians chapter 6. So as you turn there, kind of let me catch you up in terms of our context. Um, so as we've discussed, Nehemiah has been primarily concerned with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, as we've looked at uh, extensively, is also known as the city of God. So this is the rebuilding of the city of God. So m this, is more, uh, this is about more than financial uh, stability or, or physical security or economic development. The rebuilding of the city is about rebuilding the image of God, of the people of God. That's what Nehemiah and his crew are engaged in. But today, again, we're going to see that in this work there is a lot of opposition. So church, I just want to kind of say from the start, the real theme here in Nehemiah chapter 4 is spiritual warfare. I don't know how you feel about that. Okay, usually when we talk about spiritual warfare, there's going to be one or two responses. C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, brilliantly summarizes the two uh, tendencies that we have with the concept of spiritual warfare. And I'm going to put it on the screen, okay? Lewis says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. The first is to disbelieve in their existence, right? How many of you would probably say that that's my response to this thing? 
I hear spiritual warfare and I'm just kind of quick to dismiss it. I mean, just kind of move it away from me. There's no way that that actually exists. And y'all, that's, that's probably the predominant feel in this room when it comes to spiritual warfare. Because the predominant worldview of America is, is what is deemed humanism. Now, I'm going to teach a philosophy class today, but humanism is a philosophy that really dictates that the natural, physical, or material world is the only one that exists. It's the only one worth believing in. That if it can't be touched, if it can't be tasted, if it can't be smelled, if it can't be proved with science or with reason, then, then you must dismiss it. You must disbelieve it. That's the worldview that America is primarily exposed to. We are so educated right? Ever since the Enlightenment, we are so educated as Americans that to believe that there's some cosmic battle that's taking place right now in a world that you can't see, I mean, that, that's ludicrous to us. And, and, you know, so we dismiss it. Or what tends to happen in our culture is we diagnose it. We see spiritual warfare and we, and we just diagnose it. And so we turn up our noses to all these third world countries that battle their demons and battle their devils when really what they need is what? It's education. We just need to educate them. It's ludicrous to us. We dismiss it. We disbelieve it. And y'all, I mean, Hollywood hasn't helped, right? What are the caricatures of spiritual warfare in Hollywood? A little red man, horns, tail, pitchfork. I mean, who can take that seriously? Or you've watched some latest horror movie, which I highly recommend you not do, okay? And you're watching this horror movie, and it has this dramatization of some exorcism, and you're like, I've never experienced that. That's, that's preposterous. That's ludicrous. We dismiss it. We disbelieve it. That's one of the most common errors when it comes to spiritual warfare. We dismiss it. But Lewis goes on and gives us a second. He says, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils, they themselves, are equally pleased by both of these errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. He's saying the second error here is that of the magician, that to have some excessive interest in, in the evil world. So we view everything as spiritual warfare, right? There's a demon behind every bush. The devil exists everywhere. So the fact that your AC broke this summer, the devil, you know. He's just after me, you know, or your health's beginning to fail. And instead of recognizing that you've eaten Big Macs for 20 years, we're beginning to go, it's the devil. The devil's after me. Or instead of owning and repenting of sin that God may be revealing, what do we do? We, we blame it on the devil. The devil becomes the scapegoat for every problem in our lives. Now, can the devil and his emissaries be behind these things, trying to sow doubt and despair and discouragement? Absolutely. But is the devil responsible for every negative circumstance in your life? No. No, he's not. But these errors are what we kind of gravitate towards, aren't we? We, we, dis, we? we disbelieve it and dismiss it, or we dramatize it, and we have this unhe uh, unhealthy interest in them. But church, both of these responses are wrong. Lewis is right. Both of these are wrong. And what they lack is that we lack a biblical theology for spiritual warfare. That's what it reveals. If you're prone to disbelieving or if you're prone to dramatizing it, it reveals that what you lack is a biblical theology on spiritual warfare. And church, that's all I hope to provide today. All I want us to do over the next 35 minutes or so is to get a biblical understanding of what spiritual warfare is. I, I went into this week prepared to study and pray to, and preach one 40-minute sermon out of Nehemiah chapter 4. But the more I studied, y'all, and the more we got into this text of Nehemiah 4, the more I realized we need to slow down here. I think we've really got to take our time because I just don't think spiritual warfare is something that we as the body of Christ 
understand. And y'all, that is that we're, we're defeated from the outset. Paul says twice that he doesn't want us to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. I'm afraid as the church at large, we're ignorant. We're not aware of what's going on. So I think we need to slow down here. So the goal today is to enlarge our understanding as it regards biblical spiritual warfare. And then you're gonna have to come back next week as we continue in Nehemiah 4 and learn how we're actually equipped to engage in it. So that's gonna be next week. How we fight in spiritual warfare as the body of Christ is next week. How we understand it is this week. Okay, God, don't want us to be ignorant of these Satan's devices. So Nehemiah chapter 4 is where we're gonna be. But before we get there, let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. To rightly understand spiritual warfare, we go here. We go to the word of God. We go to the scriptures. We don't go to your experience. We don't go to somebody else's experience. We definitely don't go to Hollywood. We go to the word of God to help us understand what spiritual warfare is all about. In church, the scriptures are not silent about spiritual warfare. In fact, from the Garden of Eden to the book of Revelation, cover to cover, we find spiritual warfare existing in the scriptures. And Paul, in the book of Ephesus, I mean, the book of Ephesians to the church of Ephesus, gives us a really good starting point. So I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul says, and I'll put it on the screen for you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's writing to the church, right? Not to the unbelievers. He's writing to the church, to Christians and saying, I want you to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he says, the first thing you've got to understand, if you want to stand against the schemes of the devil, you've got to understand that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That our warfare is against spiritual powers of evil. Church, here's what that means, okay? It means that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that you're part of the people of God, you're part of the church at large, your wrestle, your fight in this life, believe it or not, is not against your spouse or your boss or that neighborhood Karen, we all have them, or the male version Terry, or whatever else exists out there. Your, your school board, your teacher, your coworker, your, your wrestle as the people of God is not against any form of flesh and blood. It is against spiritual forces of evil. Church, we've got to understand that. That is where we start. It's against Satan. And I'm going to talk about this here in a second, but, but Satan means adversary. The name Satan means adversary. He is God's primary opponent, and he seeks to resist and oppose anything of God. He does not want God's glory to be made known. He does not want God's people to be built up in Christ, and he does not want God's purposes of redeeming the world to be taken place. He's going to do everything he can to oppose that because he hates God. As we see in Nehemiah chapter 4, the rage of Sanballat and Tobiah is simply a reflection of the rage of Satan and his emissaries. Sanballat and Tobiah are going to be opposing the work of God with Nehemiah. But y'all, behind that is this spiritual war. And I can say that authoritatively because why was Nehemiah in Jerusalem to begin with? To do God's work. 
to rebuild God's city for God's glory so that people could see the image of God in the city of Jerusalem. It was God that stirred the heart of Cyrus to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem. It was God that stirred the hearts to rebuild the temple. It's God that stirs the hearts to rebuild his people. It's God that stirs the heart to rebuild this city. Nehemiah is engaged in the purposes of God. His wrestle is not against flesh and blood. It may appear that way, but behind it is the rage of these spiritual forces of evil. So church, give me a second and just let me say this. If through this series, over the last 10 weeks, you have begun to sense God stirring you, maybe for the first time, to finally be conformed to the image of Jesus, to draw deeper in your relationship with him so that when people see your life, they see Jesus. Let me promise you something. You're going to experience resistance to that. There's going to be spiritual warfare. If through this series, God's stirring you to rebuild your marriage for his glory in his image so that your marriage will finally begin to reflect the love and the grace and the forgiveness that is found in Christ. Let me promise you something. You're going to experience spiritual warfare because of that. You want to put a stake in the ground and say, I want to raise my kids with the word of God in their hearts and the worship of God in their lives. Let me promise you something. You're going to experience spiritual warfare. You want to start living as an ambassador and sharing your faith among your coworkers, Church, you're going to experience spiritual warfare. And it's not, listen to me, it is not because you are amazing and so powerful that the devil is just so intimidated by you. No, 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 it has nothing to do with you. It hate, he hates God. He hates Christ in you. And he wants to oppose everything that you're trying to do to build Christ in your life. So if you're being stirred to join him in any of this work of rebuilding, church, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be spiritual warfare. But from who? We need to know our enemy. And Paul says, I want you to be able to stand against the schemes and I want you to know that you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. He says, against the spiritual forces of evil. So the question I want to answer this morning is who are these spiritual forces? Like, who are we actually wrestling against? And to do that, I'm going to put a model up on the screen that comes from Scripture, and we're just going to take our time and kind of walk through this, okay? A biblical theology of spiritual warfare begins with God. Y'all, it begins with God. Everything begins with God. God alone is a self-existent and eternal creator of the universe, God is unrivaled in his omniscience. Satan does not possess his knowledge or his wisdom. God is unrivaled in his omnipotence, which is his power. He is unrivaled in his power. Any other spiritual or material being, you and I, or angels or demons, they are created. They are creatures. God alone is the one that is uncreated. That means God in his wisdom has created other beings, and that means the created beings are on a lesser level than our God. They can only be at one place at one time, unlike God who can be everywhere at all times. He is omnipresent. Psalm 115, verse 3, I could have chosen a million verses. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 97, 9 says, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Church, he is God. There is none like him. Who would you liken me, says God. Who would you compare me? He says, my understanding is unsearchable. That's Isaiah 40. There's none like God. So our biblical theology of spiritual warfare must begin with the greatness of our God. But let's move to another level. Because below him, God in his wisdom has created these spiritual beings. And in scripture, they reside in what is deemed the heavenly places. 
Not much is said in Scripture about the origin of these spiritual beings, but we are told that many of them live continually in the praise and in the worship of our God and in the service of the saints of our God. They're called angels, right? Good guys. Y'all watch A Wonderful Life? You know what I'm talking about? I'm just kidding. Hollywood, terrible, okay? But Hebrews 1.14 is a good servant here where it says, are they not all, these angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who to inherit salvation? There are good created spiritual beings called angels. But scripture also tells us that many of these angels rebelled against God. Jude verse 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. These are fallen angels. In scripture, they're often referred to as demons. And as their leader, they have a man or a being by the name of Satan. Satan means adversary. And I'm going to say it a thousand times today. He is God's primary adversary. He seeks to resist and oppose any and all of God's intended purposes. But hear me clearly. He is not omnipresent. He is not behind every bush. It's impossible. Only God is omnipresent. But what Satan has is a hierarchy of demons that serve him and his purposes to thwart the glory of God. Much like our military rank, angelic creatures have a military rank. Let me prove it to you from Scripture, okay? Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to encourage you, if you're going to read this later, bring a commentary with you. It's a weird one, okay? Daniel chapter 10. An angel comes to Daniel and says, I was dispatched by God to you, to minister to you, Daniel. But I was withstood for 21 days by the principality of Persia. What? And he says, and I couldn't defeat him. So the archangel Michael came and defeated him for me. Now I'm here to minister to you. You pull back the veil of what is happening right now, y'all. That's happening. This angel sent by God for the purpose of God to minister to the people of God withstood by a principality of evil until Michael, who according to scripture is a bad dude, shows up and takes down this principality. Hierarchies of these angels and these demons. So, in the heavenly places, the unseen realm, there are created angels for our good and there are demons for our ill. But then there's this third tier of creation, and that's called the world. This is the created cosmos that who created? God, out of nothing, breathed it out of his power, out of his wisdom. This is where you and I live. It's where we're at right now. We are on the world, and it is round, you flat earthers, okay? This is where we are. This is where we live, where we move, where we have our being. But what is very important to note when it comes to spiritual warfare is that according to Scripture, all of the world lies in the power of who? The evil one. I didn't see that coming, did you? Go back to Scripture. We know that we're from God, 1 John 5, 19 says, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul calls Satan the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers from seeing the gospel. Okay, all right, that's Paul, that's John. What about Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords? Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 31, he is the ruler of this world. Now, I'm going to cast him out, Jesus says, but he is the ruler of this world. And then if we go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And when you were dead in your sins, you were following the course of this world. You're following the prince of the power of the air. Are y'all taking in the gravity of this? That the world, although created by God, according to Scripture, is under the dominion, under the authority, and under the rule 
of the evil one. Satan is the God of this world. Satan is the prince of the power of, this air, of the air. Is that not confused some of you? Didn't I just say God is omniscient, that God is omnipotent, that God is omnipresent? Isn't God far above all rulers and powers and authorities and dominions? Isn't his name exalted above every other name? Like how can I stand up here and say that the world is under the power of the evil one? Well, I will tell you I didn't. Scripture did. So the authority is here. But how is that possible? How is the world under the dominion of Satan? Church, the answer is found in sin. It's in sin. Satan has claim over the world because creation did not stand under the authority of God. We rebelled against it. Just like Satan and his demons fell because they would not stay in their proper place, but they rebelled against God. You and I are just as guilty as Satan and those demons. The whole world has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we have sinned, now Satan has claim over all his rebellious creatures. You follow me? Has claim. Our sin has given him claim. So now we live under the dominion and under the rule of Satan. But listen carefully to this. But when God, our Father, who sits far above all rule and all power and all authority, in his wisdom sent Jesus Christ, the sinless, perfect Savior, he sent someone that the devil has no claim over. Jesus Christ may be in the world, but he is not under the rule, the dominion, and the authority of Satan because he is sinless. You following me? Sin gives claim to Satan in our lives. Jesus says, he has no claim on me. Do you hear the authority of Christ and his sinlessness? He says, he has no claim on me. He's the ruler of this world. Give me another scripture here, but he has no claim on me. He has claim on the world because of sin, but he has no claim on me. And church, that sinless Savior knew exactly what he had come to earth to do. To march into enemy territory, which is the world, and to take back what was rightfully his father, his creation. 1 John 3 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior who Satan has no claim over, came back to come into enemy territory, to come into the world, and to take those who were under the dominion of Satan and say, no, 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 they're mine now. And church, Satan knew this. You know that Satan knew why Jesus had come? He was there in the Garden of Eden when God said, hey, uh, Satan, there's going to be a man born of woman one day who's going to stomp your face. That's my translation, okay? He knows. So he knew, I've got to be on the lookout for this messianic figure. I've got to halt him. I've got to oppose. I've got to resist. I have to be an adversary to this purpose because I want to rule and I want to reign. Satan's heart. So, so when Jesus was an infant, Satan tried to have him killed at the hands of evil Herod. When he was out in the wilderness, Satan tried to get him to sin so that he could stake claim in Jesus' life as he has the whole world. And then ultimately, as Jesus matured, he, he had him killed. And he, and he succeeded, y'all. Satan had Jesus killed. And we think, well, Judas betrayed him. But who entered Judas's heart the night of his betrayal? Satan, y'all. Our, 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 our wrestle is not against flesh and blood. It's against these spiritual forces of evil. Satan was behind the betrayal and the killing of Christ. But Satan isn't omniscient. Satan doesn't possess the wisdom or the knowledge of our God. And this is where the story gets really good. Because Satan, the act of him crucifying Christ, he thought would be the very act that would thwart the glory of God forever. 
If I can just get rid of Jesus, the purposes of God will be over and I can have my dominion. But the very act of killing Christ was the very act that canceled the record of debt for the world so that now the dominion is no longer under Satan, but it's under Christ. The very act that he thought would get rid of the glory of God was the very one that put God's glory on display for the whole world to see. That's the wisdom of our God. Let me prove that to you from Colossians. When Jesus died for us, he canceled the record of sin that stood against us with its legal demands. That claim, y'all, that claim that Satan had, when he comes, when he brings you before the Father and he accuses, he says, they're a sinner. They can't be with you. They can't live with you. They don't deserve you. That was a legitimate claim that Satan had over the world. But Jesus canceled that claim, nailed that thing to the cross so that now when the accuser of their brethren brings you before the Father, and they says, hey, they don't deserve to be here. You know what you get to say? Yeah, yeah, but he brought me. I'm, I can be here in Christ. He has canceled that. And then Colossians 2.15 says, and because he canceled it, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Church, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And on the cross, he triumphed by reclaiming his creation for God and to redeem the world from enemy territory. So now, our biblical theology model looks more like this. We're living in this already but not yet time, waiting for the full consummation of this war to be over, right? And it will be. I've read it. It's coming. Jesus, King of Kings, is going to come back, and he's going to rip that Satan serpent and throw him into the abyss forever. I've read it. It's in Revelation. But right now, we live in this already but not yet where the world is kind of broken up like this, where you have people who have been saved by grace through faith, Believers in God, recipients of the redemption that Christ purchased. No longer, church, you are no longer, if you're a believer, under the dominion or the authority of Satan. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But there are others who have yet to hear the gospel, yet to see the light of the good news of Christ. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God. Church, Satan is dead set on losing no more territory. He, he knows he's lost a lot already. He does not want anybody else turning and putting their faith in Christ. He doesn't want to lose anybody else. So according to the Bible, this is where we live right now. We live in the world where this cosmic battle is happening. And church, as the church, we are called to engage in it. We are enlisted to be a part of this battle, to be his ambassadors, to open up our mouths and to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to live in such a way that it calls other to the image and the glory of Christ so that other people, people by people, marriages by marriages, cities by cities, nations by nations will continue to put their faith in Christ and put a dent into the kingdom of God, I mean the kingdom of Satan. That's what we're called to, war. We're called to be engaged in this battle. And that's exactly what's going to happen here in Nehemiah chapter 4. So I took way too much time there. But if you will, please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. This is our biblical theology. God's people joining him in his work for his glory, experiencing spiritual warfare all the while. So today, again, we're going to see how this spiritual warfare takes place. And then next week, we're going to hear about how to be equipped to engage it. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. 
And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stall and wall. What a, what a great zinger there, Tobiah. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's pause here for a second. So Sanballat and Tobiah are these primary characters, and they already appeared in Nehemiah chapter 2, right? They were greatly displeased that Nehemiah would even come seeking the welfare of the people of God. But the welfare of the people of God has now progressed to where the wall is beginning to get built. Stability and security is coming to the people of God. So what began as displeasure for Sanballat and Tobiah has now moved to rage. Y'all, they are enraged by this, and they begin to mock them insult them, accuse them. In the presence of this great army, Sanballat in modern-day English is saying, what are y'all doing? Look how weak you are. This task is beyond you. Your, your failures, I mean, we know you're pious. What are you going to do, pray it up? You're just going to pray, and all of a sudden the wall is going to come up? He's mocking him. He's jeering at him. He's saying, and look at the material, material you're using. These stones, y'all, they're rubbish, they're burnt, they're broken down, they're insufficient. You can't build a wall with those stones. You're going to build it, and you know what's going to happen? A fox is going to run across your wall and tear it down, you know? Again, Tobiah. Starts with these insults. In church, these jeers, these insults, these accusations, they may seem silly to us, but we have to understand that they were perfectly calculated to play on the insecurity, the fear, and and the self-doubt of the people of God. Right? They're saying, you're too weak. This task is too big for you. Well, if you were here last week, Coleman talked about the people that God uses to do his work. What was the first category of people that God uses? Anybody remember? Failures. Y'all, for, for the most part of these people's lives, they believed they were failures. They had already tried to rebuild this wall once under the leadership of Zerubbabel and failed. And then for about 90 years, they just sit there, dejected, despised, totally vulnerable, unwilling to do anything about it. Y'all, they had believed that they were failures. These insults and these accusations were, were just preying on their inner insecurities and their fears of failure. You know what it is? You know what kind of warfare that is? Psychological. And I just want you to leave here believing and knowing that according to Scripture, the spiritual warfare that you and I are engaged in as the people of God, you know what it is? psychological. This is psychological warfare. These insults, these accusations were aimed to get into the minds of the people of God. If they can just believe that they're too weak, maybe they'll stop working. If they can just believe that this task is too big to them, maybe they'll despair just enough that they'll stop working. Either way, the, 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 the purposes of God will be thwarted, which is what the adversary seeks to do. Let's keep going in our text in verse 4. Nehemiah responds and says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Let me just pause and kind of give you about 30 seconds on this prayer, okay? First, in typical Nehemiah fashion, his first response is what? Prayer. Church, for Nehemiah, prayer was never a last resort. It was always his primary weapon. And I pray that becomes true of you and I as well. In that text of Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare, Paul says, listen, pray at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer, with all supplication, make supplication for all the saints. The way that we stand against these schemes is primarily with prayer. 
Living in constant communication, y'all, in communion with God in prayer is one of our greatest defenses. You may not believe it, knowing how big I am today, but when I was a freshman in high school. I was about five foot five, 115 pounds, okay? That was a joke. Come on, I'm not very big. I was five foot five, about 115 pounds, but I played every sport, and the locker room was just a brutal place for me, okay? Five, five, 115, freshman in high school, brutal. But there was a time my freshman year when nobody would bully me. And nobody would mess with me. You know when that time was? When I was next to my older brother, Mr. Middle Linebacker, Mr. State Champion in wrestling. When I was close to him, nobody messed with me. Church, that's what happens when you remain close to God. When you meet near him in communion with him in prayer, your victory is, is, is just totally complete because of that communion. But this, this prayer, I mean, the words of his prayer, what he actually prays, I mean, it's kind of harsh, isn't it? In verse 5, I just want you to just notice this in verse 5. At the very end of his prayer, he says, they have provoked you to anger, O God. What I want you to notice is that Nehemiah is recognizing in this prayer that they are opposing God. They're, they're not opposing Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows my wrestle is not against flesh and blood. God, they're opposing you. So he prays in, in that light. He says, God, so you judge them. God, so you vindicate them. The point for us today is that while Christ has shown us a better answer to evil, turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile, we can still learn from Nehemiah to look to God, not to ourselves for vindication. Your wrestle's not getting his flesh and blood. Look to God for your vindication. All right, let's go to verse six. What a strong sentence this is. So they're jeering them, they're taunting them, and verse six says, so we built the wall. What a strong statement. We built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half of its height, for the people had a mind to work. These taunts fell on deaf ears. They built the city. They built the wall all the way around the city up to half its height. This is an extraordinary accomplishment. The psychological warfare of discouragement of these accusations, it didn't work. But look at verse 7. It's not over. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that their psychological warfare had not worked, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Church, when the psychological warfare aimed at discouragement failed, the psychological warfare aimed at stirring up fear was then applied. Right? That's, that's the goal here. And I, I want to say, even these threats of physical violence were just that. They're just threats. These things were intended to get into the minds of the people of God. And I can tell you they're just threats because Sanballat and Tobiah and this army were never willing to see them through. They were never willing to attack Nehemiah. You know why? Because Nehemiah had the Persian Empire's permission to rebuild that city. Sanballat and Tobiah were both political figures. For them to have attacked and opposed the people of God would have in effect been attacking and opposing the kingdom of Persia. And Sam Ballant and Tobiah are too wise for that. So they go, let's threaten them. Let's get a big show of force. Let's begin to threat. Let's create confusion. Let's let them think and believe that we're going to kill them and maybe they'll stop. In typical Nehemiah fashion, verse 9, what's he do? He prays. He depends on providence through prayer. And then he sets as a guard protection against them day and night. But church, what I really want us to see is verses 10 through 12. Because something significant has happened in verses 10 through 12. Something has happened in, in the mindset of these people of God. Let's read verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. 
There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we're not able to rebuild this wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them, family and friends, came from all directions and said to us 10 times over, you must return to us. So the people themselves are saying, it's too much. We're going to fail. The rubble's too much. And then the the enemies are saying, we're going to kill you. And then family and friends are saying, gosh, you, you can't do this. You need to come home. The fear is palpable in this text. Church, what has happened? How can you go from, from verse 6, where you have a mind to work, to verse 10, four verses later, to a mind to quit? What has happened in the mindset of the people of God? Y'all, they're, they're losing the battle for their minds. That's what's happening. Actually, what is happening in our text today is something I see play out in the lives of Christians every single day. We lose the battle for our minds. This is psychological warfare. Satan and his emissaries are trying to get into your mind to convince you through accusations and lies that you can't do something, that you're not good enough for something, and you begin to believe those, and it renders you ineffective. That's exactly what's happening in our text today. First, it began with accusations. You're too weak. You're a bunch of failures. You've totally underestimated this project. And then what happens in verse 10? They go, hmm. This is just too much for us. Y'all, they believed them. They they came into agreement with these accusations. And in our text, it it worked. Church, I just want you to hear that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That's Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. He's the accuser. So what that means for you is that if you seek to rebuild your life, your marriage, your family, your career for the glory of God, you will begin to hear some accusations like this. You're not good enough to be used of God. I mean, look at your sin. I know your sin. They know your sin. You're unqualified for this. I mean, look at your past. If everybody knew who you were, there's no way they would accept you. God's not even going to accept you. Remember that outburst of anger you had on one of your four kids, Andrew? Who are you to disciple your kids? Sorry, that's a real one for me. Okay. Your coworkers, they've heard your locker room talk. They've heard your cooler talk, your coarse joking. They're never going to listen. You want to share Jesus with them? Who do you think you are to share Jesus with them? Am I hitting home with anybody here? Anybody else? Am I the only one that hears these things? Church, this is what he does. He accuses you night and day and just tries to convince you that you're unworthy to be used of God. And if you believe it, you'll just give up. You're rendered ineffective. It's exactly what happens. How many of you guys are just exhausted by this constant onslaught of accusation? Satan and his spiritual forces of evil have so effectively waged this psychological war that so many Christians are filling our churches who believe you're unworthy of God's love, that you're unsuitable for any of God's work, and you now are just totally undone by his accusations. Our churches are full of Christians like this, Christians. I'm not saying unbelievers. I'm saying Christians, people who have put their faith in Christ, who have been saved by the grace that is found on the cross of Jesus Christ. But you're living your days, however many they are, 20, 30, 40, you're living your days totally rendered ineffective for the kingdom of God. And he didn't have to touch you. No physical harm was done to you. All he had to do was get into your head and you begin to believe the accusations he makes about you. Our churches are full of this. But y'all, if accusations don't work, you know what his his greatest weapon is? Lies. He lies. Look at verse 2 real quick. He says, the material you're using, guys, this is Sam Ballot and Tobiah, they're rubbish. These rocks that you're using, 
they're burnt. You can't use them. They're insufficient. They're ineffective. Y'all, those are lies. You know why they're lies? You know how I know that they're lies? They've already used them to build half the wall up to its height. Did you see that? In verse 6, they built the wall. Those stones were good enough to build half. Then all of a sudden in verse 10, they're going, there's just, just too much rubble. What happened? What happened is they began to believe the lies that Sam Ballot and Tobiah began to spit out at them. They believed. They came into agreement. There's too much rubble? Are you kidding me? There's half the rubble today than there was when you first began building. You've already put a dent in half the rubble, but yet they've convinced them this rubble is too much for you. They believe these lies. Church, lies. Lies are so effective. Jesus says that Satan is a liar. That when he lies, John 8, verse 44, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. Paul was so concerned with the church in Corinth, and he writes in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I'm so afraid that just as the serpent lied to Eve with his cunning, your mind has been led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This is where the battle is, believer. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is where the battle is. He lies to you. He wants you to believe something that is untrue so that you will be ineffective as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, that you will no longer advance his kingdom, that you will live the remainder of your days on the bench, on the sideline, believing there's just no hope for me, believing I just can't get anything about this. This sin struggle is just, I guess it's just my thorn. It's just my thorn in my flesh. I've just got to live with it. And there's no victory. You've, you've just given up because Satan has convinced you of a lie. See, this is one of them. This work is too hard, rebuilding your marriage. If God really loved you, wouldn't it be easier? If God really loved you, wouldn't he give you a spouse that would make this easier? I mean, you're all alone. Nobody sees, nobody cares. Your prayer's bouncing off the ceiling, buddy. God doesn't hear. He doesn't care. He's not coming to help you. Your kids, you see them struggling with sin, with the world, and he begins to whisper, if God were really good, would he let your kids stray like this? How many times have we heard these lies? Constant onslaught. Lies are how Satan and his forces try to rub you of life, church. Lies are the easiest way to render you ineffective for the purposes of God. And once he plants a lie, right? I see this play out so much. Once he plants a lie and you begin to believe it, the problem isn't that you begin to tell that lie. The problem is you begin to live that lie. We live these lies. And you know what the Bible calls living a lie? It's a stronghold. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They have divine power to pull down strongholds. What are strongholds? Any lofty opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What a stronghold is, is a habitual pattern of thinking that sets itself up against the truth. That it's untrue, but you've agreed with it so much and you lived it so much that you have believed that it is true. Now you're deceived. Those are strongholds, but I'm going to tell you, God wants to pull those things down. Our churches are full of Christians who live according to these lies, living that there's no victory for you, living that you have to wait till eternity, I suppose, until you get a little respite, believing lies about God, believing lies about yourself, and believing lies about others, and we are rendered ineffective for his purposes. Church, our war is not against flesh and blood. I'm talking to the believer. That's what the church is, believers in Christ. This battle is for your mind. And, and I'm going to talk a lot about this next week, but, but y'all, this battle is for the minds of our children. Your school district is not your enemy. I'm sorry. Email me. 
Okay, it's not. Like, like that's not our, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Put the scriptures in the minds of your children so that we can push back this darkness. Just let me get that out. I needed to get that out. Our minds are going to constantly be flooded by the world. I'm not afraid. I don't want you to be afraid. I feel like there's such a spirit of fear in the church of Jesus Christ. He has not given you that spirit. He has given us all that we need to have our understanding enlarged and to be equipped and engaged. And I cannot wait to preach next week, okay? I'll stop, but I cannot wait to preach how we're equipped. We've got to believe the truth. Lies are how he renders us ineffective. Sanballat and Tobiah accused and lied to the Jews, all in an attempt to oppose the purposes of God. With prayer and planning, Nehemiah was able to stave off those attacks for a moment. But what we see from Ezra, I mean, from Nehemiah, verse 6 here in our text to verse 10, is that over time, those lies and those accusations, they worked their way into the minds of the people, and they began to lose that psychological war. But again, I cannot wait to gather next week. Because what we're going to learn next week from our text is that we get to fight back. We get to fight back. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. I cannot wait to see the church of America come out of hiding and fight back. So we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're going to see how that happens. So sorry to leave you on a little bit of a low note today. Psychological war is real. Spiritual warfare is real. We have a biblical understanding. Next week, we're going to see how we're equipped and engaged. So why don't you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us, and our team's going to come back up and lead us through a song of response. Father, we are just so grateful for your word, so grateful for your scriptures. I pray that you would give us a mind to study, uh, a discipline daily to put it into our mind, to our hearts, into our lives. Give us the strength and the grace and the mercy that we need, not just to know it, but to live it. We need help living out these truths. The onslaught is real, Father. I know you know it. Jesus, you, you were just like us. You were tempted, tried, attacked in every way that, that we are. But you gave us a model out there in the wilderness, fasting, prayer, deep dependence and communion with the Father and wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God with such power and such wisdom, able to resist the devil so that he may flee from us. Father, we want to learn. Teach us to learn. Teach us how to engage in this battle, to submit to you, Father, and to resist this devil. Thank you for the victory that we as believers in Christ already share. Thank you, Jesus, for what you came to do to destroy the works of the devil, to disarm the rulers and the authorities and the principalities of this world over this present darkness. Thank you that we get to be the light, that although this world is still under bondage to this present darkness, you have set us up as the church of Jesus Christ, as a city on a hill. May we shine, shine so bright that it pushes back this darkness. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.